Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 28, Freetown State Forest The Freetown Fall River State Forest, near Freetown, Massachusetts, has a reputation for being one of the eastern U.S.'s true hotspots for the just plain weird. All manner of strangeness is alleged to occur here, from the ghost stories that I love so well to the presence of strange folkloric creatures and both cult activity and UFO sightings. And as we learned in my most recent crossover episode with the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the walls between UFOs, ghosts, and cryptids are not as firm as many of us tend to assume. Off the top, I will note that many of the stories that I have seen attribute some of the weirdness here to the strained and often violent relationships between the Wampanoag people native to the area and the various white settlers. I'm going to avoid bringing that up except for where it is particularly relevant for three reasons. One, as I work with Native American leaders as part of my day job, I have a lot of conversations about various topics that bother them. And they have often brought up that these stories can be irritating because they are often more connected to beliefs about the perceived alienness of Native Americans than to anything that has ever actually happened or is currently actually happening. Two, because I have access to archaeological and ethnographic records archives, I've been able to look up what is actually located at various areas where all manner of Native American sites are said to be the cause of hauntings. And there is pretty much never anything to the stories, suggesting that they are not in any way based on any observable reality. And three, the cursed by a shaman and Native American burial ground and other such type explanations are, frankly, overdone and played out. They usually indicate a lack of imagination and more than a little racism on the part of the storyteller. All of these put together mean that I am not inclined to blame the Wampanoag people for any weirdness, and I would discourage others from doing so as well. The Freetown State Forest covers around 5,500 acres of land, and has numerous unpaved roads and paths running through it. It is popular with hunters, campers, hikers, and the outdoorsy types. The forest falls within an area that many paranormal enthusiasts call the Bridgewater Triangle, a portion of southeast Massachusetts where all manner of weirdness is said to occur. As put by Mysterious Universe, quote, The forest sits squarely within the infamous Bridgewater Triangle, a 200-square-mile area within southeastern Massachusetts that is the epicenter of a mind-boggling array of inexplicable bizarre phenomenon reported since colonial time, including strange creatures, Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, specters, ominous black helicopters, mysterious orbs of light, strange disappearances, giant snakes, poltergeist activity, 
and cattle mutilations, to name but a few. The exact boundaries of the Bridgewater Triangle are nebulous, but were perhaps most clearly laid out by cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman in his book Mysterious America, The Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, Strangest Spots, and Creepiest Creatures. Coleman defines the Bridgewater Triangle as being comprised of the towns of Abington, Rehoboth, and Freetown at the points of the triangle, and Brockton, Whitman, West Bridgewater, East Bridgewater, Bridgewater, Middlebrough, Dighton, Berkeley, Raynham, Norton, Easton, Lakeville, Seekonk, and Taunton inside the triangle. Within this cauldron of weird occurrences, Freetown State Forest is said to be most active, a veritable wellspring of the weird and bizarre. When discussing the numerous cases of strange phenomena within the Freetown State Forest, it is hard to know where to begin. Unquote. So let's start with the general weirdness of the forest, shall we? The forest is alleged to be the location of all manner of satanic and or occult activity, with rumors of cult rituals, animal and human sacrifices, and the summoning of demons and spirits. The presence of, in quotes, occult graffiti, from the images I saw, most likely from kids who saw their older brother's heavy metal album covers, is frequently used to back up claims of cult activity. The area is also reputed to be the site of a large amount of violent crime, including murders, and one doesn't have to look far to find a list of bodies said to have been found within the forest. I have not been able to actually fact-check any of these lists, though, so I have no idea what, if any, truth there is to these claims, except for a little bit that will be discussed later. UFOs are also said to be frequent visitors to the area. Ronald Reagan, of all people, is reputed to have seen one here in the 1970s. UFO author Lauren Coleman reports that other people claimed to spot UFOs in the area in 1971 and again in 1979. The newspaper, The Enterprise, relates two stories of people seeing UFOs circa 2011 and 2012. Now, I am not going to dwell too much on the UFO stories, but they are worth noting as UFO sightings are often associated in popular folklore with haunted locations. This was a significant element of the 1975 book The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, and is a recurrent aspect of stories regarding the weird happenings at Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, and I've come across it at other times in researching episodes for this podcast, most recently the Calico Ghost Town episode. When one gets past the initial, more sci-fi elements of UFO lore, there is a definite undercurrent tying UFOs to the occult and to the supernatural generally. Which is interesting as the general public tends to view the existence of UFOs as a scientific matter, not one of supernatural inquiry. And yet, subjects regarding life after death and spiritual forces play a prominent role in the UFO enthusiast community, albeit they are not usually put front and center for the public. And where there are rumors of cults and UFOs, what else do you always have? That's right, cattle mutilations. Allegedly, two incidents of cattle mutilation occurred in the late 1990s. Two newspaper accounts I tracked down dated to 1998 reported that in April of that year, around a dozen calves were butchered on lands abutting the park, and in October, a cow was decapitated and mutilated in the same spot. Both the, frankly, rather lurid newspaper accounts and internet lore attribute the butchering of the cattle to cult activity. Rumor holds that there were earlier episodes as well, though I couldn't find any specifics. A police officer interviewed for the 1998 articles claimed that the cattle were killed as part of a satanic ritual in observation of a satanic holiday known as Grand Climax. 
The same police officer claimed that the murders of three women in the 1970s and early 1980s were part of the same ritual cycle, though the evidence for that was always based on the testimony of a witness held by many to be unreliable, and which seemed more than a little out there in its details. Even today, there is a fair amount of disagreement as to what occurred and why, and recent reinvestigations, including the one behind the recent docuseries Fall River, raise more questions than answers. Suffice to say, there appears to be little reason to think that the murders were satanic rituals as opposed to crimes committed for other reasons. The similarities of the murders may indicate a serial killer that was never caught, and amongst the suspects are two pimps, the women were working as prostitutes when they were killed, both known for propensity for violence. This was more likely an earthly series of crimes made possible by indifference and sadism than a cult ritual powered by Satan. Now, Grand Climax does exist, and is observed by certain occult groups, but the descriptions I could find rather strongly suggest that the police officer interviewed, as well as the certainty of the connection between Satanism and both animal mutilations and murder, appeared to be influenced more by Satanic Panic-era sensationalistic writings than any actual rituals performed by any real-world groups, but I'll discuss that a bit more in the commentary. Finally, the area is said to be rife with Bigfoot sightings, with sightings reportedly dating back as far as 1765, and one particularly well-known 1983 sighting taking place outside of the state forest in the surrounding area. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the Bigfoot weeds, as Bigfoot is so often treated as a cryptozoological matter, that is, a possible real animal than a supernatural entity. However, much like UFOs, when one scratches the surface, there is no end to supernatural aspects attributed to Bigfoot. Claims that I have heard include people saying that Bigfoot travels between our world and the spirit world, that Bigfoot is a spirit and not an animal, that Bigfoot is a great shaman, and that Bigfoot travels in UFOs. Again, I don't want to get too deep into the Bigfoot lore, but there is much more overlap between Bigfoot lore and spirit and ghost folklore than may be evident on first glance. Bigfoot isn't the only quasi-mystical creature to be found in this place. The forest is reputed to be a refuge of the Pukwegis, a race of dwarf or troll-like creatures around two to three feet tall who are said to glow some of the time. The creatures are known from stories told by Wampanoag peoples, but are similar to dwarf-type creatures found in folklore throughout the Americas and really throughout the world. The Pukwegis seem to delight in frightening people, playing pranks, pushing the unwary, throwing rocks, and the like. However, sometimes they moved beyond being minor nuisances and became more vicious, attacking people with spears and knives, pushing people off of cliffs, and allegedly luring people into the forest to their deaths. The Freetown police have even added a Puckwidgee crossing sign at one of the bridges. In an early episode of the podcast Lore, episode 7 in fact, there is a story of a man who lived near the area, taking his dog out for a walk one night when he saw a strange, small, humanoid but not human figure approach the road and utter something that the man could not quite understand. The dog did not like this creature, and the man fled back to his home where, unable to sleep, he realized that the sounds the creature had been uttering were an attempt at pronouncing English words intended to persuade the man to follow it into the forest. Apparently, a Pukwudgie had attempted to lead the man to his death. The Pukwudgie is not the only character of Native American folklore said to inhabit the area. Many people claim to have seen massive pterodactyl-like creatures flying in the area, often said to be the Thunderbird, 
though few Wampanoag Thunderbird stories survive, and it is unclear if their stories of the creature are similar to other Thunderbird legends in North America, or something more distinct. Lauren Coleman reports that phantom big cats, including panthers and lions, have been reported throughout the Bridgewater area, occasionally inspiring people to go on lion hunts. Also, large black dogs, similar to the demonic or ghostly black shuck of British folklore, have been spotted in the area. Coleman reports that, during the 1970s, black dog sightings outside of, but in the general vicinity of, the Freetown State Forest led to school children being kept in at recess for fear of the creature attacking them. A local firefighter also reported seeing a black dog attack and kill his ponies. There is a large rock outcrop within the forest known as Profile Rock, also called the Old Man of Joshua's Mountain. The rock looks like a stylized profile of a human face, and really, it is pretty cool. There will be a photo in the show notes. Local lore claims that this is the image of either Wampanoag chief Massasoit or his son Metacom, better known to many as King Philip of the 17th century conflict known as King Philip's War, and that it stands where Metacom died. But the truth is that the profile was created by activities in the 19th century, likely involving dynamite, for construction and or mining. Personally, I think the face looks more like a Yeti in a Darth Vader costume than a person. Again, look at the photo in the show notes. Regardless, people report hearing voices, feeling sinister presences, and even seeing evil-looking, though surprisingly nonspecific in the accounts that I could find, apparitions here. My guess is that the evil-looking apparitions are shadowy figures, as that seems to be the norm in these sorts of stories. In addition, the apparition of a lone man is said to appear atop the rock, sitting and looking out, and there are rumors of ghostly Wampanoag warriors that dance around the rock. People using tape and digital recorders claim to have received a large number of EVP recordings, audio that is present on the recordings but that could not be heard by the people at the site at the time that the recording was made, which ranges from nonspecific voice sounds to a voice declaring, You will serve Satan, as well as voices calling out the names of both victims and criminals associated with the area. The location has been subject to a large amount of vandalism, and cleanup efforts appear to be a never-ending chore. Let us now move our tour to the former quarry of the Fall River Granite Company, where the 80-foot drop down is topped by the Asinet Ledge, aka The Ledge. It is said that people who visit here are overwhelmed with a sense of dread, which may contribute to the allegedly high number of suicides that take place here. And one of the suicide victims, a woman who waited for her boyfriend who never showed up, is said to now be a ghost that haunts the ledge. It is also alleged that it was while in a small Cessna plane flying over the ledge that Governor Ronald Reagan spotted the UFO, as mentioned earlier. The ledge is said to be the location of all manner of satanic activity, as evidenced by occult graffiti, which, again, I think looks more like teenagers screwing around, but what do I know? Finally, on our little travelogue, we come to the Hockamock Swamp. Although not entirely located within the forest, the swamp's 16,915-acre size dwarfs the forest. It is nonetheless adjacent to the forest. As I hope to produce an episode about the swamp itself down the road, I will only briefly touch on it here and note that settlers called it the Devil's Swamp, and that all manner of weird creatures, ranging from Bigfoot-type beings to red-eyed dogs to the previously mentioned pterodactyl-type flying creatures, have been spotted here and is reputed to be the haunt of many a spirit. 
However, according to paranormal researcher Christopher Pittman, the most common thing that people report in the swamp is the feeling that they are being watched by something unseen and unearthly. As Hockamock Swamp really deserves its own episode, I'm not going to get much deeper into it here, but suffice to say that it is a pretty strange place. Oh, and did I mention that the Freetown State Forest is very near Fall River, where the famed Borden family murders, typically thought to be the work of daughter Lizzie, occurred? Because, yeah, that's also in this vicinity. Regardless of whether there is any truth to the stories of satanic cults, UFOs, or other things, this corner of the United States has seen more than its share of darkness and weirdness. Commentary There is a lot going on here, but before I really get into the commentary, I want to cover something. There is one type of event that comes up in discussing the Freetown State Forest that I've only briefly touched on in this entry. Most of the online discussions I have found discuss numerous murders in the area over the years. I will only briefly discuss them, as most of those for which information is readily available are recent enough that many immediate family members and friends of the victims are still alive. While I doubt that I have a large enough listenership to grab the attention of any of those impacted by the murders, I find it distasteful to use someone else's family tragedy to gain cheap thrills. When something is retreated far enough into the past and acquired enough folkloric baggage for it to no longer cause hurt to living people, then I'm comfortable discussing it at greater length. But at this time, I think it best to keep our discussion to the folklore, the stories, and how they relate to larger social trends, and not to focus on the murders for entertainment purposes. Okay, now on to the commentary proper. Freetown State Forest has a rich tradition that includes a wide range of weirdness. There seems to be very little that isn't a part of the 20th and 21st century paranormal discourse that isn't said to occur in this area. But as rich as the stories here are, there are certain trends that are readily visible. The first is that much tends to be made of the conflict between the native Pocasset Wampanoag people and the European settlers that began to push into the area during the 17th century. While this history is notable and important, from a ghost story standpoint, it's also something of a red herring. There is little land across the Americas where much the same story could not be told. It seems to be brought in here both because of the local folklore regarding the Pukwudgies provides a cultural provenance for some of these tales, and because, as is often the case, the non-Native American people tend to feel very comfortable blaming strange things on, in quotes, those mysterious Indians. I think at some point I should produce an episode based entirely around the trope of local weirdness being either the results of Native American activities, such as the Amityville case, or where more recent stories are falsely claimed to be steeped in Native American lore in order to give them a veneer of antiquity and authenticity, such as may be the case with the Dark Watchers of California's coast. But the Puck Wedgie story calls for a bit more consideration in this light. On the one hand, stories of such creatures often cross cultures and become part of regional folklore, regardless of where they came from. But every source I found specifically stated that the Puckwedgies were part of Wampanoag folklore, rather than simply stating that they were creatures known to be there. This suggests to me that there is a vague and slippery connection being made between the supposed creature and the Wampanoag people. On the one hand, the creature was here before, as were the Wampanoag. And we know this because the people had tales of the creature. 
This all seems to tie the two together in a manner that suggests that the creature sometimes serves as a stand-in for the Wampanoag, ensuring that their presence is still felt even if they are less numerous than they once were and have lost direct control over the land. In this sense, the puck wedgie may serve a function similar to what anthropologist Matt Tomlinson noted for other dwarf-like dangerous supernatural beings in Fiji. They can serve as a sign of indigenous continuity and power, though the fact that, at Freetown, the creatures are celebrated by a largely white political establishment, hence the police putting up the signs, still puts this somewhat on its head, as it is a captive power kept for entertainment purposes. The Puck Wedgies can also serve as a rather racist cautionary tale about the dangers of pushing away the people who know the land. After all, the Wampanoag people lived in the area for thousands of years and, one would think, learned a great deal about its mysteries. And while we European-descended folks have impressive technology and social order, well, maybe we lost something of the connection to the magical that would have better prepared us for encountering beings such as the Puck Wedgie, as well as the Thunderbird so often observed near Freetown. Of course, this particular way of looking at things really hinges on the idea that non-white people are magical, more primitive. This is essentially the same idea that Edward Said describes as Orientalism when it was pointed towards Asia and the Middle East as a way of justifying European colonialism, while also allowing Europeans to be fascinated by and fearful of the people in those places. And, of course, as I discussed in Episode 4 on Amityville, these types of Native American ghost story elements can allow us to both acknowledge and deflect the rather difficult history of European interactions with Native American peoples. It allows us to acknowledge that we live on and benefit from land that was taken from another group centuries in the past, lets us view ourselves as trespassers, but also moves that conflict into the realm of the supernatural so that we don't have to sit long with the knowledge that history isn't shiny and happy. The puck wedgies allow us to metaphorically deal with the fact that history is still with us, that the events of centuries ago are still present in the order of the world today, without ever directly confronting the way that we, not our ancestors, but we ourselves, remain part of the events that unfolded after the first European colonists arrived. Another trend I noticed in the stories of Freetown is that many of these stories seem to be very much artifacts of the 1970s and 1980s. The focus on satanic cults sounds to me much more like a typically misleading and hyperbolic account of the sort that was common in the media during my childhood and teen years than anything that ever actually occurred. And it is worth noting, some of the more lunatic fringe elements of the religious right in the U.S. made great efforts to promote these ideas among law enforcement. While most law enforcement officers usually recognized this nuttiness for the paranoia that it was, a few did succumb. The murders of three prostitutes briefly mentioned earlier were eventually pinned on Carl Drew and Robin Murphy, two rival pimps, or so the newspaper accounts tell, with strong violent streaks and a tendency to clash over territory. The articles I read and reviews of a recent docuseries on the subject named Fall River seem to provide plenty of motive and reason for the murders. There are also some who think that the similarities between the murders point to a more methodical serial killer rather than Drew and Murphy killing women in a clash over criminal territory. However, from what I can tell, some of the law enforcement involved were influenced by the increasingly prominent cult cops who provided seminars on the occult, all while the satanic panic was spreading via the mass media, which encouraged people to look for signs of Satan in their hometowns. These ingredients seem to be all that was needed to take this from a sober investigation and trial to one where claims of the occult became more significant themes. 
To this day, there is a notion that satanic cults are actively practicing sacrificial rituals in the forest. The law enforcement officer interviewed for the articles I read on the 1998 cattle mutilations cited dates on the occult calendar and rituals that, frankly, likely had more to do with the fever dreams of people obsessed with alleged Satanism in the 1980s than with any actual activities. The cattle may well have been killed and butchered, but I fail to see why this is a weird thing that happened automatically means Satanists did it. Unfortunately, all materials I could find on the 1998 cattle mutilations were so sensationalistic that it was difficult to tell what really happened, as opposed to what the reporter was being fed by people who clearly wanted to once again show the evils of the occult. Accuracy of a story be damned. Now, I mentioned that in both the criminal investigations and local media, the animal deaths had been associated with a satanic ritual called the Grand Climax. ReligiousTolerance.org has made a list of how satanic holidays are portrayed in evangelical Christian media of the type that informed the cult cops of the 1980s. And they all show Grand Climax as being either in the spring or the winter, not in October. So based on the materials that the local police would likely have had, this association seems a bit weird. I can see where they might try to pin the April mutilations on Grand Climax based on this, but the October ones, that's just odd. And actually trying to find the timing of Grand Climax as it's actually celebrated by occult groups, I found a few different dates, mostly clustering around mid-January or July, so it may be a biannual event and some non-Satanic groups celebrating the Day of Grand Climax at a few different times throughout the year. Regardless, none of these dates correspond with the April or October cattle mutilations. So I think that the police officer interviewed by the newspaper was getting Grand Climax confused with Halloween, so apparently nobody was doing their research. Long story short, claiming that animals were killed for a Satanic holiday called Grand Climax in October doesn't make any real sense, and even the ones in April probably had nothing to do with Grand Climax. The animal mutilations reported in the area naturally tie into both the UFO sightings and the Satanic cults. In much UFO folklore, animal mutilations, and especially exsanguinations, are held to be the work of aliens, possibly experimenting with Earth's life forms or maybe feeding. In a lot of common beliefs about the occult, it is believed that these same mutilations are the work of Satan worshippers attempting to carry out black magic rituals. Some writers, most prominently John Keel, who, in one of the few likely accurate statements made in his book The Mothman Prophecies, notes that interest in UFOs and interest in the occult tend to rise and fall in tandem. He goes on to suggest, without any sort of real evidence, that black magic covens are serving, even if unknowingly, whatever or whoever is responsible for UFOs. Keel is pretty adamant that there is some evil supernatural force from Earth, and not aliens from another planet, pulling the strings. If one really wants to go bonkers, you can purchase a book called Round Trip to Hell in a Flying Saucer, which purports to tell of demons masquerading as aliens and abducting humans and animals for blood sacrifices. Closer to home, when I was in college, I had a friend who told me that the pastor of the Pentecostal church she attended in Modesto would give sermons about how demons were disguising themselves as aliens so that, when the rapture came, they could claim people had gone missing due to a mass alien abduction and not the fulfillment of God's end-time plans, at least as conceived by a particular portion of the born-again Christian movement. 
So there is a history of tying UFO sightings, cattle mutilation, Satan worship, demons, and religion together. This seems to be a largely far-right conservative Christian phenomenon in the United States, though John Keel is just as unwilling to call the evil entities and UFOs demons as he is to call them aliens, and seems to hold out for some vaguely non-sectarian category for bad entities that have evil intentions. So it's not a strictly conservative Christian position. Now, I promise that I will not turn this podcast into a UFO or cryptid podcast, but as the boundaries between these various forms of paranormal folklore are pretty porous, it's impossible not to get into these other areas every now and again. I suspect we may be about to see another proliferation of these types of stories as well. Much of the mythology held dear by adherents of the QAnon movement is taken directly from the satanic panic of the 70s and 80s, as well as the occult UFO beliefs that circulated heavily in the 60s and 70s, and which often interacted in odd and unpredictable ways with this satanic panic. QAnon doesn't appear to have produced much that is new in the way of weird and paranoid beliefs, but it has repackaged and weaponized old ones in a politically partisan fashion. So I suspect that we will see another round of such stories as those surrounding the Bridgewater Triangle to appear, but with a lot of right-wing politics attached. Incidentally, in researching the Grand Climax, I came across a rather weird booklet that was produced sometime in the 1980s or 1990s to assist law enforcement in identifying and investigating occult crime, and it is a weird mishmash of reasonable discussion of how real-world cults work and paranoid claims about the threat of Satanism. In the booklet, which is cited in the show notes, there is a list of authors who encourage satanic thought, which interestingly includes Ayn Rand, an author who has had an outsized impact on the modern Republican Party, the party with which QAnon is loosely aligned, and also a list of groups that share ideals with Satanism, which includes a number of still extant militia groups and far-right churches that are now aligned with QAnon's repackaging of this satanic panic, but which during the 1980s were being warned against by the very groups who initially propagated the satanic panic. It's interesting to consider how the targets of the panic have become, in some cases, the propagators of the panic. There is one feature that is near, but not within Freetown State Forest, but that source is regularly mentioned in reference to Freetown, and that is Dighton Rock. It's not spooky, but it is interesting. Dighton Rock is a 40-ton glacial erratic, a rock that originated in one location and was moved and deposited somewhere else by a glacier measuring roughly 5 feet by 9 feet by 11 feet. The rock is covered in a variety of petroglyphs, or carved rock art, and the age and origin of many of the petroglyphs are unclear. The rock was described by Cotton Mather in the 17th century. Yes, the same Cotton Mather that publicized and helped popularize belief in witches in the American colonies. At the time that he examined it, the rock lay in the bed of Taunton Creek, but has since been moved to Dighton Rock State Park. The inscriptions have attracted a good deal of attention over the years, with people attributing them to everyone from the Phoenicians to Vikings. I'm not an expert in eastern U.S. rock art, but I am an archaeologist, and based on what I've been able to find, the carvings on the rock, while unusual and ornate, are nonetheless not out of the wheelhouse of most Native North American groups. And indeed, some of the panels have been shown to be remarkably similar to local Native rock art. Additional carvings may have been made by settlers from the 17th century onward. Most of the, oh, aren't these mysterious writings regarding the rock appear to be based on pre-20th century assumptions about the primitiveness of Native Americans. 
the same assumptions that prevented people from recognizing them as the builders of some of North America's impressive mound sites, such as Cahokia. In other words, it's mostly racist and garbled nonsense. I did not find any ghost stories tied to Dighton Rock, but it is frequently mentioned in tales of Freetown State Forest, and it's interesting, so I thought I'd include it here. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky! <laughs>